pray. God, we are so thankful for you speaking to us. And you could just stay silent. You could leave us here to die. That would be completely fair. But you're merciful. You're gracious. You give us life. And um, I pray that you would give us life through your word today. That as we study the Trinity, that this would not just be uh, information to us, but it would be life that it be bread, that it be water to us, God. And may this cause us to worship you as uh, as it has for me as I've studied this doctrine. Uh, may this all end with worship because this is the only proper response to us seeing you for who you are, God. So be active through the Holy Spirit. Be present here, God. And we give this time and may you be glorified through the teaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty. Okay, so... Um, we've got some handouts right here. So if you look at your handouts, um, you'll see the outline. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to spend two or three minutes going through uh, the contents of last week so we have a foundation to work on. So last week was kind of the the, uh, the foundation of, of the of this doctrine. And then as we go on today, we're going to talk about what it means that God is a triune God. What are the implications of this three-person God? So, um, first off, definition. I'm going to go with last week's definition. So, the definition of the Trinity. Within the one being that is God, there exist eternally three co-equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, let's look at it this way. So, there's a Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Does this mean that these are all three separate gods? No, it means that the, the Christian understanding of the Trinity is that the Father is one person, the Son is one person, the Holy Spirit is one person. These are all distinct, but they are not three gods. They are the three persons within the one Godhead. And how does that work? I'm not. It, it's hard for our minds, it's impossible for our minds to comprehend. But this is God in three persons. Okay, so, and um, they all play different roles, each of these persons. They all, uh, they all relate to each other, and they're, they're all distinctively their own person, yet they are one God. So, um, this is the foundation, and if you want to uh, hear more, you can talk to me. I haven't posted the, uh, this con- the contents of last week's. Sunday School Online because there was the car honking and the audio is unusable, so um, I'll have to re-record that lesson now. I'll post it online, but I have the handouts if you want later. Um, okay, so that this is the this is the definition of the Trinity, uh, so the foundational truths of the Trinity. So uh, it's number one, God is three persons. Number two, each of these persons is individually each, each of these persons is fully God they're not one third God and and these three persons the with the one third plus one third plus one third equals one whole um, they're all equally and eternally God so so far this is fine um, number three there is one God. So Christians do not believe in three gods. Christians believe in one God, and within that 
Godhead are three persons. So this is the um, the foundational truth and then the necessity of the Trinity. So we spoke last week about philosophically, why does the Trinity need to exist? If you look at God, let me... Um, God the Father. What does someone need to have in order to be a father? A son. A son or a daughter, right? So there's um, a son. So God didn't become a father when some cults, they say that Jesus was born and this is when God became a father. God has always been a father. And in order for God to always be a father, there has always have had to been a son. Okay? The scriptures teach that the son has always existed so necessarily, in order for God to be a father, he needs to have a son. And then there's also the Holy Spirit. Why th- Why does there need to be a third person? And this is, we don't see this in the scriptures, but if you think about it logically, this is how it works out. So within the Godhead, within between the Father and the Son, there is eternal, uh, ebullient love. It's just uh, this this overflowing love. There's this one um, one philosopher in the I think it was the Middle Ages. His name was his name escapes me right now. I think Victor is somewhere in his name. He might have been from the town of Victor somewhere. But he said that when you have two people loving each other, it, it, it have you guys ever seen those discussing couples? It's like they're so in love and it's to the exclusion of everyone else. And you're like, oh, that's sweet, but it's really disgusting too. Um, this is not to say that the love between the Father and the Son is disgusting, but what it does mean is it's not exclusive. So it's not just the Father and the Son um, going back and forth. It's just not, it's not this uh, um, exclusive type of love. It's a love that works within community. So this is the... I'm not going to say the only role within the Godhead of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is a third person in the Trinity. And within the Trinity, it's not just love between the Father and the Son but it's love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure if this is proper, but there is love. God is love. So how can we say that God is love? Uh, There's love between Father and Son. There's community within the Godhead. God is love. All people, whether or not you're Christian, you're going to say that, or most people, they'll say, oh, of course God is love. Well, if you were to strip God down, if you were to remove everything that 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 isn't God, and you say if you say that at the very core God is love, does that mean that before the foundation of the world, that God was loving something? How can that be if God is not a triune God? So in order for God to be a Father, God needs to and God the Father. In order for God the Father to be a Father, there needs to be the Son, and in order for the God had to be a community. There needs to be the Holy Spirit. And in order for God to be love, God had had to have set his love upon something before all eternity. Otherwise, it means that God is dependent on his creation for his identity. It would mean that God would be dependent on his creation for his identity. If God is love, that means that he needs something to love. Well, the, God, the doctrine of the Trinity says, no, God doesn't need anything else because within himself is all love. Within himself, everything that God desires is already there. So this is 
I was, I was, I kept on thinking about this throughout the week. How is it that throughout the scriptures, from the very beginning of the scripture, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, it speaks cohesively of, of this, of this trinity, um, either, uh, explicitly in the New Testament or in foreshadows in the Old Testament. How is it that across these thousands of years and across all these authors of the books, can we have this doctrine of the Trinity? And I was thinking it had to have been God who wrote the Bible because how it, it just blows my mind that there is not only that there only is existence, but there is an existence that is good. And today we're going to look at that. What what are the implications of that? Okay, so I'm going to keep this up here because this is going to be part of the uh, today's lesson. But any questions before we move on? Is that the chain of how it works, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? So, um, there is an order to the Godhead, which is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the Father is greater than the Son. Um, and it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is greater. So, this is something that um, I'm not going to try too hard to answer because I don't want to say anything heretical. But... Um, <laughs> Within the Godhead, there is life, and the Father is the one through is the one who um, is the source of life for the Son and the Holy Spirit. So I'm thinking, I'm going to leave it at that. I don't want to say anything, especially because I'm being recorded right now. <laughs> um, I don't with the with the Trinity with something that is um, there's a lot of room for error in the in the Trinity, and actually, if you look at all the cults. Um, a, a lot of them, their errors hinge on their understanding of the Trinity. And if you if you're not precise with your language, you can head towards misunderstanding and possibly cults. And um, I don't want to do that. So, but yes, um, all three persons in the Godhead are equal um, in status, but they're distinct in their roles. So, so the Holy Spirit provides community. The Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is an aspect of community, um, but His role. Uh, this is why this is why I said earlier um, we don't see this spelled out explicitly in the scriptures. But if you look, if you think of it logically, um, the Holy Spirit, the the presence of the Holy Spirit within the Godhead, um, says to us that the love between the Father and the Son is not an exclusive love. That says, okay, well, we've got everything we need here. Um, we can shut everyone else off. But the Godhead is an example of community. So for us, um, we don't say, well, I mean, I'm, I'm married. I have every, everything I need now, so I don't have to hang out with my friends. Or I'm at a church now, and I don't need to, like, I, I'll just find a peop- group of people that I like, and I don't need to interact with these other people. So, um, yes, that's that. Uh, see, oh, sorry. Speaking of community, I think uh, I read this one book or something where, like, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, like, they're always like pointing to each other. Mm-hmm. Always like, like when Jesus is on earth, he's always like, "Oh, my Father in heaven, he, you know, he did this, he did that." And then when, uh, like, Jesus gets baptized, he's like, "Look, this is my Son. Like, I'm so well pleased with him." And then when mm-hmm. Jesus leaves the earth, he's like, "I'm going to leave you all with like the Holy Spirit." And like, yeah. it's very like pointing to each other, very communal. Like, it's not about themselves, right? It's about yeah, yeah. So. And this is completely different from other gods and other religions because they'll say, well, it all comes back to this 
singular, uh, I don't know, however, however these other religions understand their deity. But it's, um, yeah, within, as far as I know, the Christian faith is the only one with a three-person Godhead. And it's amazing. So um, let me go into uh, our sheet now. So this is going to be the implications of the understand- of our understanding of the Trinity. So I'm going to kind of go through these quickly because I want to get to the very end. Um, so um, let me talk about the Trinity in creation. So the first one is this. I'm just going to go around the room. Tracy, can you have re- can I have you read Acts 17, please? The Trinity in creation. <laughs> the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all manca- mankind life and breath and everything. All right, so here it says explicitly, God does not need anything. God does not need anything. And remember, remember I said earlier, um, God is not dependent on his creation for his identity. So be, what this means is because there was love in the Godhead, there, wa- there was this, everything that's in all of existence, before there was any universe, before anything was ever created, within the Godhead there was all already this um, love and, and however it is, I just, I can't understand exactly how it is. Creation says that because God doesn't need anything, the implication is that we exist because the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit overflowed into the world. So creation is an overflow of the love of God. It's his creative genius in the form of his... Uh, his love is spilling out into creation, and we'll continue on in that. Let me, um, Sarah, can I have you read Hebrews one three, please? And actually, yeah, just read Hebrews one three for now. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He help, upholds the universe by His word of His power. Thank you. So, um, what this means is actually, um, can I have you close the door? Right there? I'm sorry. Uh, at the door um, at the. Thank you. So, um, God is exuberant. So what does this say? That there is a radiance to the glory of God. So, the Father, there's just... He's... he's uh, God himself, the, the Father himself, is exploding. He, there, there's just this exuberance to God that goes out. And it's... Here it says here, where, where does it go? Um, the radi- Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. So, the glory of God... Is exuberance. Jesus is the radiance, the radiance of God. So I have here this little notes. Creation is good. It does not compete with God. So when he calls us to turn away from creation itself, it is always for our good. So, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but God says that creation is good. Remember in Genesis, he says, God looked at what he did, his the work of his hands, and he said what? That it was good. And this is different from other faiths, other worldviews that say, well, the, the universe is born out of struggle between the gods. This is why there, this is why some people say, well, there's just so much bad in the world. There's all this chaos. It must mean that we're an accident or it must mean that at its core, creation is not good. But the Christian faith says, no, 
creation is good because it's an overflow of the love of God. So when God, and this is um, our, my note here, what I'm saying here is that when God says, you guys need to turn away, you need to repent, you need to, whatever it is that you're stuck on, it might be this person, it might be this job, it might be this habit, whatever it is, that could be completely fine and good in and of itself, but it has, it has stolen your attention from me. And God says, I'm the one that created it, created that, and I created that for your enjoyment, but you have distorted your love for this thing. So now it's become an unhealthy love. And God, when he says, repent, turn back to me, God is not saying that these things are bad. He's saying that these are so good that I didn't, I created them so that they would serve your life. No, that not so that you would serve these things in your life. So God himself is good. Creation is good. This is not a struggle between good and evil. It's a struggle between the greatest and the creation of the greatest, if that makes sense. I'm going to go a little bit more into this as we talk about salvation. Okay, so um, kind of speeding along right here. Well, if you, I'll take some questions in a couple minutes. But Jeff, you've got this really long passage um, from John 17. Do you mind reading that? I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. All right, let me stop you right there. Do you guys see in this passage the the concept of the Trinity? The Father's in the Son, the Son is in the Father, and Jesus says, I want the church, I want my bride to reflect the workings of the trinity within it okay so you can go on verse 22 the glory that you have given me i have given to them that they may be one even as we are one i in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me father i desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where i am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. All right, let me stop you right there. Uh, the love that the Father gave to the Son before the foundation of the world, that means that the Son existed befo- before the creation of the world and that there was a love between them. And what this says is that creation exists because God is, not only is God loving his Son, but through his Son, God is loving the world. If you can go on, verse 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. All right, so this is amazing. It means that the love of God is not a selfish love. Remember, we said earlier, the love between the Father and the Son has existed between before all eternity. There was nothing deficient in that. But God says, "What is remember, remember in John 3, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not, shall not die but have everlasting life. This is God saying that my creation is exists because I love the son so much. And this is why creation exists, because it's an overflow. And, and, and the love the father has for the son God wants it to be shared because it is so overflowing. Okay? So this is the Trinity in creation. Creation exists not so that God would have servants. 
creation does not exist out of struggle because what are the implications? If God needed servants, it would mean that God is a weak God, right? It would mean that God is dependent on his creation. It does not mean that... the And when, when we say that the universe or the creation was um, not created out of struggle, it means that God... Within himself, there's nothing that he needs. He's, um, it wasn't a struggle between good and evil, and this were not the, the results of um, some cosmic fights. Okay, so this is the implication of the Trinity in creation. The, the world exists, you and I exist, because God loved the Son. You and I exist because God loved the Son. All right, any questions? Okay, let me go on. The Trinity and salvation. So this is kind of a two-part thing. Um, the first part is that our humanity is restored. So Samuel, I'm going to have you read. Actually, can I have you read two verses? Um, one in Genesis 1 and also in Matthew 22. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Female, he created him. All right, thank you. That's a, let me, let me uh, give a short commentary on this. In... The image of God we were created. So what does that mean? Part of it means that, remember this love relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are, part of our humanity includes love. Okay, and go on, read Matthew 22, please. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. All right. There is a comprehensiveness to this command from Jesus. He says, with everything that you are, with every ounce of your energy, with every um, bit of willpower, with every resource that is at your disposal, you are supposed to love me because this is what you were created for. So our first point is this, that we were created to love. We were created to love. What were we, what were we supposed to love? We were supposed to love the Father. Remember in John 17, Jesus, t- Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, um, I want my people, I want... I want our creation to love you. I want our people to glorify you. So we were created to love our creator. Christine, can you have, can you read, um, can I have you read all three verses? I'm going to stop you throughout each verse, but. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired. Okay, so right here, Eve is tempted by the serpent. And this is where the fall of humanity begins. This is when humans become dehumanized. Part of our identity as humans is to love. Eve started to love the wrong things. So instead of loving God, this is where she started to love. It says here, she saw what was good for food, uh, saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired. So her desires, her affections, her love were redirected from love for God to love for creation. Uh, Go on. All right, thank you. So Paul, again here, he affirms this, that creation, they understand intrinsically, or they understand um, at the very core that there is a creator. And at the very core, humans understand that they were created for something bigger than themselves, but they have loved the creation more than they love the creator. And then Second Timothy. All right, so we see here from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the fall of man is man's love for 
God being distorted and turning into love for the creation. So what has God done? The solution, uh, Allison, can I have you read Galatians 4, please? All right, there's so much in here. Let me unpack this. So, first off, you guys see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in this passage right here. So, let me start off with um, with this last line, or second to last line, where it says that the spirit, or the the middle, the middle uh, line right here. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, "Abba, Abba." So this is unique in the to the Christian faith which is you say to God, you are not just my creator, you are not just my master or ruler, you are my father. What does that mean? It means that we need to understand God as fundamentally what he is, which is the father. What is necessary for the father to be? Uh, The trinity. So here we see the the trinity in action, turning us back to love what we were created to love. We were created to love the Father. We were created to understand and recognize God as our Father. Okay, so we see here, um, yeah, this God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, saying, crying, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. So the Trinity says that our understanding of our Creator is changed. So, even though we fell away from God, even though our loves are disordered, God says, I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to turn this around. All right? So let me go on. First um, John 4, 8. Uh, John, can you, can you have you read these verses right here? Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we love, we have loved, but God, God, but that He loves us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. Great, thank you so much. So again, we see in this passage the Father, the Holy Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity working together to bring us back to our original intention. Alright? And then I'll just read this because it's a short verse. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So here, the Holy Spirit is active in pouring out His love through the Son, through the Holy Spirit. So God is loving, God is including all the, the persons of the Trinity into this saving work. Alright? And, um, Jeremy, can I have you read John 8, please? Jesus said to them, If God were your father, he would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. All right, so here again, Jesus is saying, If you understand me, if you are a follower of me, then you will love my father God just as I love my father God. So the solution to our problem is the Trinitarian God sending his son to rescue us and the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk about how the Spirit, how all three persons work with it for salvation later. But 
um, what this what this says is that the Trinity, all of the Trinity, is active in restoring us to our original intention. So when we sin, we are dehumanizing ourselves. When we turn away from God, we're saying, um, "Whoever you created me to be, I don't want to be that person anymore." But God says, "No, I'm gonna, I'm not going to let you go that easy. I'm going to send my Son to rescue you, and the Holy Spirit is going to do His work to bring you back to me." All right. So this comes to uh, the uh, difference between religion and the gospel or Trinitarian salvation. So I have this little note here: religion is inward. So every other form of salvation says. Because I, I I care for my own safety, because I care for my own comfort, I'm going to follow these rules so that in the end, hopefully I'll have eternal life. Hopefully I'll go to paradise. Hopefully I'll go to heaven. And this is really wrapped up in ourselves. We say because I'm scared of other stuff, because I am, uh, I don't want to have an uncomfortable afterlife, because I don't want to go to hell. I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to obey the rules. And what is this? This is religion. But Trinitarian salvation says, no, you were not created just so that you could avoid hell. You were created to love. So, Trinitarian salvation turns our love outward. So, when we're... When we're salvation right here. This is the world. Um, salvation, this is us. When we are saved... We become, we reflect the Trinity, which is outward facing. It's exuberant. So, Trinitarian, Trinitarian salvation says, I'm no longer concerned about my own safety, my own um, fear of hell. Instead of that, I'm filled with love. I have love for another, just as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have a love for another. So do you see how this works out? Is we were created for something, and salvation is us. Because going back to the image that we were created in, we we're created in the image of a trinitarian God, and our salvation is reflective of a trinitarian God, which is outward facing, which is exuberance, and this is how we can love. We can love um, not selfishly, not self on a self-serving level, but we can love completely outside of ourselves. Okay. Uh, any questions? I have a question. Yes. The other day, I was reading the like the end of Mark to my kids mm-hmm. and talking to them about like the crucifixion and why it was so painful to Jesus mm-hmm. and the idea that like, he was separated from the Father. Yeah. And it kind of uh, it's confusing to me as well. Yeah. So this is. Um, Actually, Christine uh, commented on this last week, but this is, um, I can't understate how traumatic this was for all of the universe and all of history because God, the Trinitarian God, there has always been love between the three persons, right? But on the cross... The thing that has been eternal, the thing that has identified the Godhead, that was fractured because God's Jesus tells the Father, he, he cries out to the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turned his back on his Son, and the relationship that has existed for all eternity was broken. This is 
I, I don't understand how this can be that God the Father would turn his son his back on the son. But it's precisely because of that. Because the father turned his back on the son, the implication is that God will never turn his back on us. And because... and So turning his back on his son, it was still all one Godhead. It, w- it was all one Godhead, and um, this is, again, something that I'm hesitant to speak too much on uh-huh. because I don't want to <laughs> fall into heresy. But the God, in one sense... The, the, um, the composition of the Godhead was broken. That's as much as I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that's a really good, good uh, question. But that, that's how much it costs the Father to save us. Okay, I'm going to go on. I want to make sure that we have time to cover as much as we can. So, um, the Trinity and salvation. So, I'm going to fly through this in just two minutes because I want to make sure we have time for other other stuff. But, do you guys, who knows what soli deo gloria means? Glory be to God. Glory be to God alone. Glory be to God alone. So, everything, the, the reason why we live is because God has done everything. So, the Father initiates, you can read that in First John, the Father initiates our salvation. The Son achieves it on the cross Jesus says, it is finished, meaning that he had a job to do, and he did it. So the work of Jesus was finished on the cross, and the Spirit employs, so this breaks down into a few things. Number one, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. He tells us that what we are doing is wrong, it's offensive to God, you need to turn back to God. The Holy Spirit regenerates, and you can see this in Titus 3, where it says that that by the wash, uh, if you look, uh, further down this passage by the washing of, of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit who is poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so the Holy Spirit regenerates us he makes us new he makes us a new person and the Holy Spirit enables us not only to turn back not only to recognize our sin but to also acknowledge who the Father is and what the Father has done for us no one can say that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit if you truly can say that only Jesus is the Lord, it's a Holy Spirit working in you. So all of salvation is done completely by the Trinitarian God. And this is, um, unfortunately, there are lots and lots and lots of churches, lots of churches really close by here that say, well, I mean, God, he does most of the work, but it's up to you to make the decision. It's up to you to make the choice to follow Jesus. You, God can do 99.9% of the work, but you need to take that one final step to accept him. Well, uh, we don't believe that. And part of the reason why is because of the Trinitarian aspect of salvation, which says, no, if you want to be saved, if you want to accept Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit needs to do that. So the God from beginning to end, from initiating our salvation to completing it, it's all God. Okay? Questions? Okay. Let me move on. The Trinity in Christian life. So we have this long... Because it's so long, I'm just going to ask for a volunteer um, to read this. Um, And I'll interrupt throughout this passage, but who wants to read Romans 8? 
read it. Thanks. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for, for adoption as sons. All right, let me, let me stop you right there. So we see, again, the, uh, the Trinitarian aspect of our Christian life here. There's the God the Father. There is, it talks about us being adopted as sons. So this is, Jesus is the firstborn. So we're taking after Jesus. And here is the Holy Spirit. Uh, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. So here's um, some aspect of the Trinity. Um, go on, verse 26. The redemption of our bodies. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that, the, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Great, thank you. So here is, a, in some ways, the story of a scripture, which is that we were created to know God, to love God. But because of sin, the world was broken. It was fractured. This is why it says here in Romans that there's uh, all of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. There is, to all of us, if it hasn't happened already, at some point it will, we're going to feel the effects of this fall. We're going to groan and we're going to say, God, what is going on? What is the role of the Trinity in this the Spirit, He acts on our behalf. He, he's, when we don't know what we can say to God, we say, God, I, I have reached the end of my rope. I'm so tired. I have nowhere else to go. I don't even know what I can pray to you because I feel nothing or I, I can think nothing. The Spirit does something in us and it searches our hearts. It's working inside us and He's acting on our behalf. So in our suffering, in the reality of this broken world, the Trinitarian doctrine says that God is has not forsaken you. In fact, because of the work of the persons of the Trinity, you know that God will hear you. You know that God will hear your groanings. When you have nothing else to say, he searches our hearts and he knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The will of God is one of the big promises of Jesus is this. It's in this world you'll have trouble. This is promised to us. But the will of God is that the Spirit will intercede for the saints. And there's this confidence in this passage saying that we know that all things work together for good for those who love Jesus and who are called according to his purpose. So the Trinity in the Christian life, in our suffering, the Trinity provides comforts. The Trinity also um, transforms us. Nate, can I have you read Second Corinthians 3, please? We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Thank you. Again, we are being transformed. So we were saved but we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. We're being transformed into what? The same image, the image 
of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The work of the Spirit in our life is to transform us from one degree of glory to another. And sometimes we look at our life and we say, it is like, I'm so sinful, or I've messed up so much. And the scripture promises, you may not see it, but God is changing you one little degree at a time. So don't be discouraged because the Spirit is working in us. He's transforming us. He's rehumanizing us. We were dehumanized by the fall. We're being rehumanized. Um, and David, can I have you read um, Ephesians 2.18, please? For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. All right, so through Jesus we have access in one spirit to the Father. Again, this Trinitarian language. Uh when we pray, in whose name do we pray? We pray in the name of Jesus. Because we pray in the name of Jesus, we have confidence that we'll be heard because we're, we're, um, think of, think, think of it in terms of this. Let's say that you want to meet the president, but, um, you, yeah, we're nobodies. The president doesn't know who we are. But let's say that we're friends with the president's wife, and we say, hey, president's wife, um, can you hook me up with a meeting with this guy? Um, and the president says, well, I don't know you, but I know my wife because I trust her, because I know who she is. Um, I'm going to listen to you in a much more 10,000 times better type of way. We can speak to the father on the basis of the son. So we've identified with Jesus the son. We've been made in his image, uh, and we can go to God with our prayers and say, I, on my own, can't approach God, but because I have the name of Jesus, because I'm talking to Jesus, I'm talking to God with the authority of Jesus, I'm confident that my prayers will be heard. Okay? So this is the uh, the Trinity in the Christian life. And let me... Um, I'll, I'll save questions for the end, but just two, three more minutes, and then we'll end. Um, who is like our God? So there is this passage in the Psalms that says, Who is like the Lord our God? And it's just psalmist saying, Wow, I've looked at the other deities of the world. I've looked at how other people worship. I've looked at what they give their lives to. And I can say... There is no one like this God. So let me read for you this quote from Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens, um, he was a famous atheist. He's dead now, so he's, I don't think he's an atheist anymore. But he wrote, he said this in, in, in an interview. Um, he's written a ton of books and articles against um, belief in God, and specifically uh, the Christian God. I think it would be rather awful if it was true, saying that God is, exists. If there was a permanent, total, round-the-clock divine supervision and invigilation of everything you did, you would never have a waking or sleeping moment when you weren't being watched and controlled and supervised by some celestial entity from the moment of your conception to the moment of your death. It would be living like, it would be like living in North Korea. Christopher Hitchens is saying, if there were a God, he would be on your back to make sure that you're living the life that you're supposed to live, that you're not breaking any rules. And we can say to Christopher Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens, this God that you don't believe in, we don't believe in him either, because this is not the God of the Bible. 
what is the God of the Bible? Who, what is the God of the Bible like? Let me read for you this quote from the Puritan John Owen. Every other discovery of God without this will but make the soul fly from him. But if the heart be once much taken up with this, the eminency of the Father's love, it cannot choose but to be overpowered, conquered, and endeared unto him. Look, think of, look, just consider how, um, uh, how he uses his words. It's so expressive. This, if anything, will work upon us to make our abode with him. If the love of the Father will not make a child's delight in him, what will? Put then this to the adventure. Exercise your thoughts upon this very thing, the eternal, free, and fruitful love of the Father, and see if your hearts be not wrought upon to delight in him. So this is Puritan language. It may be difficult to understand, but at the what he's saying is this. We have a loving God. And if we truly understood it, if we truly understood this Trinitarian God, we could say with Jesus, I love the Father. I love the Father. And whatever happens to me, I know that he is good. He's good. So what is our God like? He is a loving God. The Trinity is the answer to people who ask is God really love? God is necessarily necessarily love because of the Trinity. At his very core, even before we existed, God already had something to love, which was God the Father was already loving the Son and the Holy Spirit, and there was this love going back and forth in the Godhead. God is love, and God invites us into this love. God is a merciful God. Things aren't merciful, but because God is a personal God, he has compassion. He has mercy. So the Christian God, the Trinitarian God, more than any other made-up God, has this aspect of mercy. Our God is a holy God. Our God uh, is, um, if, if we consider the definition of holy, he's completely set apart. He's set apart from his creation. That means that he's not subject to the limitations of us. God is not a better version of us. God is completely different than us. God is a just God. It means that because God is love, you can you can believe that when you see injustice, when you see whatever it is that happens in the world, that God be, is not going to just let this go because God is a God of love. He says, I love my creation so much. I hate it when my image is destroyed in people and injustice and slavery and all this other stuff. God hates it. Because he loves us, because we're created in his image. And he promises that one day he will make all things right. Our glorious God. How can you say that God is good and glorious if not for the Trinity? Because the Trinity says, I mean, if not for the Trinity, why not say that God has been infinitely vengeful? Why not say that God has been infinitely um, angry? Because Without the Trinity, you can't say that. But because there was within the Godhead, God, that this ever overflowing love, you can say that God is full of glory in all aspects. And Paul, when he was thinking about who God was, and this is something that I've been considering and meditating on, is when we think about all that all that the Father is, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this aspect of the Trinity, I don't understand it. But as I've been studying this the past few weeks, I've been thinking, man, this is how I 
can be confident that not only is the Bible true, but the God that we worship is true. So let me close off with this, and I'll take one or two questions if you guys want. But we're going to pray along with Paul. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the God that we worship. This God that we don't understand. The God that gives us life. Um, is there? Are there any questions? Let me recommend this guy, this book to you, Delighting in the Trinity. Um, this is a, a layman's book. It's not very heavy, and it's really easy to read. But this is the best book I've read on the Trinity. I read through a lot of systematic theologies. Um, this book is seriously, it's so good. So let me let me recommend this to you guys. It's I really um, you can read it in a day. Um, but I really recommend this to you. It's so good. So if I wasn't clear, this guy can clarify it. His name is Michael Reeves, um, Delighting in the Trinity and Introduction to the Christian Faith. Um, let me pray. And thank you guys for sitting in. Thank you for your questions and listening. God, um, how unsearchable are you? Um, we rushed through this doctrine, but we could spend eternity thinking about it, and we still wouldn't reach the end of it. So... With the, our little short, feeble attempts to understand this doctrine, will you honor it? And may this cause us to want to dig deeper, and it may, ca- may it cause us to worship you with greater love. Um, impress it into our hearts. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yeah, we're good for it. I wasn't sure because.